People of Earth, I would like to welcome you to the third season of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. In this podcast, I consider it my duty to share the sometimes gory, but always honest truth hidden in the craft beer industry, mainly that it rarely operates like an actual business. Margins are trash, distributors are garbage, and capital expenditures are a raging dumpster fire. But many of the people involved in all these organizations are true badasses. So I will autopsy deceased breweries, retailers, and distributors. I'll talk with wineries, breweries, and distilleries, all in the search for ways to lure out profitability and best practices for you to use in your career to be better tomorrow. In 2020, I released a book about my journey of failure and the lessons it forced me to learn. My hope and the hope of our guests is that by telling all of our stories, we'll be able to teach you and teach each other what to avoid and how in the hell to avoid it, to make the industry better, to make the people happier, and hopefully to even make the beer taste better. So thanks for joining us and being part of this journey. If you feel inspired, I would appreciate a like, a share, and a rating. You can't even imagine the difference that it actually makes. Dan Garrison is the founder and proprietor of Texas' first legal bourbon distillery, Garrison Brothers in High Texas. I wanted to interview Dan because I knew there were lessons we could learn from how spirits goes to market. I was positive that there were overlaps in the cash flow model for aging bourbon versus fermenting beer. I knew that he had overcome massive obstacles on the path to building his nationwide brand, and I was certain that understanding his business would make us better in ours. What I didn't know was that he was still chasing profitability after 17 years. That some of those struggles he overcame almost killed his small but high-end bourbon distillery. And I was surprised to hear him predict a saturation point similar to what the beer industry is experiencing now. Dan and I recorded this episode in the sunshine on the grounds of Garrison Brothers. I wasn't the only one enjoying the Texas bourbon that day, so you'll hear people talking, dogs barking, and even a small plane circling overhead. I hope that helps you imagine you're sitting at the table with us, enjoying the company and the bourbon. Dan was a gracious host. He was open with his story, freely discussing his successes and failures in ways few can manage. I was struck by his passion and inspired by his poetic description of the role of bourbon in a fulfilled life. I truly hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed recording this episode of the podcast. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine. Keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts. But it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better. More professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business. And her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. All right, Dan, I want to thank you for talking, thanks for sharing, and thanks most of all for giving a barrel-aged, wax-dipped fuck about helping all my guests be better at their careers. (laughs) You own uh, what is Texas' oldest legal bourbon distillery? That's correct. I'm looking forward to getting into the inspiration for that bumpy road that led you to being a national brand with a fairly fierce family of followers. Like even today, we saw a whole bunch of people at noon on a Wednesday going on a tour. I think it's awesome. But I'm also looking forward to getting into the differences and how the bourbon business works versus the beer business works. But first, I'd like to get to know you. So uh, why don't you share your story? Like, who were you before you were Texas' first legal bourbon baron? Sure. I'm Dan Garrison. I'm the founder and quarterback here at Garrison Brothers Distillery. And this adventure began for me about 1989. I was a graduate of the University of Texas, Hook'em Horns, and uh, <laughs> moved to New York City the day after my last class at school. 
and got a job in advertising. Worked at two different ad agencies in New York City. One's called Gray Advertising, and the other was called Saatchi and Saatchi. If you've ever seen the uh, the chicken trucks rolling down the highway for Tyson Foods, that was my advertising campaign when I was up in New York City. Really? And the entire time was I was there, I was a redneck. I still am a redneck, and uh, was dipping about five cans of Copenhagen a day. <laughs> so I hadn't had a single date the entire four year period that I was in New York City. They weren't into the old Texas the, guy. The, the, those girls don't get it. They don't get the culture. <laughs> They, they got to come down here and sit in a pickup truck. So out of the blue, I get this phone call. I think it was 1993 from this woman from Austin. She says, hey, my name's Nancy. And a friend of mine from the University of Texas, who was in my sorority, Kappa Kappa Gamma, said I should look you up next time I'm up in New York because I do a lot of uh, retail shopping trips, trips up there. Hmm. And I said, wow, this is pretty cool. First of all, she's from Texas, so she's probably smoking hot. Second of all, she's a Kappa Kappa Gamma, so she might have a little cash. And then third, um, she's asking me up on a blind date, having no idea what a delinquent I was at the time. So I was pretty excited about it. I said, yes, Nancy, let's go out to dinner. She came up a couple of months later and uh, fell madly in love, moved back to Texas, stayed in the advertising business with GSDNM in Austin for about five years, and then jumped ship like everybody did in Austin in the middle of the 1990s and went to a software company <laughs> called ExtraPrize. And I thought I was going to be a get-rich-quick scheme because I was sitting on about 17,000 stock options in the company when it was <laughs> sold to a big California company called Commerce One. And then um, Enron went belly up. And Enron was the, a global trading exchange that everybody modeled their business after. And we were actually building software that would create these global exchanges, online trading centers. Mm. And uh, when Enron collapsed, everybody went belly up, including my company. And everybody lost their job and those stock options just disappeared into thin air. Worth absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Just a waste of time. But it was a great experience. That's was, was fun. So I had to kind of rebuild myself after that. What am I going to do next? Because I couldn't get a job in marketing in Austin. And I was laying in bed one night and talking to my wife. And she said, well, what do you love? And I said, I love bourbon whiskey. And she said, well, maybe you should pursue that. And I said, holy shit, did she just give me a ticket to, to go to Kentucky <laughs> and learn the bourbon business? And I did. I went to the to the Kentucky distilleries and I made a lot of nice met a lot of nice people that became my friends over the years. And they encouraged me to go forward with it. At the time there were only nine distilleries in America making about thirty five brands of bourbon. This and, is the early two thousands? Yeah. Okay. And bourbon was granddaddy's drink. Nobody drank bourbon anymore. Vodka was hot, you know. Nobody was drinking brown spirits. Yeah. No, it was actually one of my questions is how on earth did you fall in love with bourbon? Like I've loved bourbon since I was 13 years old. <laughs> I, uh, I hated it as a kid. I'd like, you know, I like it. like scotch in the 2000s, and now I like bourbon quite a bit today, but it's definitely taken me a while to get there. Uh, the best bourbon gift I've ever been given by my wife was my uh, 35th birthday. And she gave me an entire, my birthday's in December. So she gave me a huge red and white stocking full of Maker's Mark bottles. Oh, really? It was nice. <laughs> That's cool. The early 2000s, they encouraged you to do it. And yep. there were nine, nine in the whole country? Nine, nine, nine bourbon makers in the entire country. Yeah, that were actually like creating the beer, distilling it, and then yep. you had a bunch of things from there. But that's crazy. Like, And all of them were shrinking. They were like, are you out of your mind? Why would you get into this business? It's failing miserably. Bourbon's, bourbon's never going to make a comeback. I read some articles, I think, around that timeline. Yeah, around 2000, that talked about the bourbon lake, which I had never heard this term before. But supply was super heavy, apparently, at all of the retailers, and they called that a lake, like a 
exactly you know, bourbon and prices were i mean you get a bottle of bourbon for 15 bucks it's changed a little bit since then dramatically in a good good way <laughs> we have more bourbons to choose from today than america's had in its entire history and that's a good thing i i love hearing about other competitors that are out there making bourbon whiskey good bourbon whiskey especially if they're from texas although the trade-off is that there's more of them and they're great but they're also getting harder to find in many cases so that's for sure frustratingly harder to find you talked about the ad agency that was one of the questions that i'd had is that there's there's no shortage of guys you know middle-aged dudes that have a couple of bucks or don't midlife crisis that want to start uh, either a wine bourbon or beer business but there's got to be that creative spirit and that was going to be a question is did you always have that through your whole life did you like to create and clearly the ad agency took a different format but that was there yeah did you as a kid when i was younger i i read a lot of health help um, self-help books um one of my favorite was good to great um (laughs) and it was about collins uh uh-huh it was about how you you create a legendary business you have to be thinking big you have to have a big hairy audacious goal and so um in starting this operation it was it was kind of i knew exactly what i wanted to do i wasn't going to make a regional bourbon distillery i was going to make a bourbon that was it had to be uh, eventually an international brand. And today we're nowhere national and talking about going international soon. Really? Oh, well, that's uh, the fourth segment we're gonna get to that, but I'm looking forward to hearing that part of it for sure. Mm-hmm. Obviously, when did you just start, decide to start the bourbon distillery? Was it early 2000s? What happened then? Like, what? how did you go? Well, you said you were a bourbon fan, but how did you decide bourbon, not whiskey? Like, was there a reason in the industry or was it strictly personal preference? Why why bourbon? Why well, did I start? Bourbon specifically and not just brown water generally, I guess. Right. I, 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 um, I've always loved bourbon whiskey and um, I knew it was going to be bourbon or nothing else. And I okay. was just too stupid to realize it was impossible. And so I just <laughs> kept butting my head against the wall until it finally happened. And here we are 17 years later and it's finally happening. My distributor in New York sent me some numbers yesterday that just kind of blew my mind. We, we doubled sales in New York City, 2020 to 2021. Really? And that's just, that, it has taken 17 years for that to happen, but finally people are figuring out that we make a pretty good brand and um, they're searching for it. So uh, it's, it's finally taking off. Yeah. 17 years <laughs> without a profit. Wow. Nobody does that, nobody survives that long, but we did. I didn't. That was nine and a half. And I was like, you know what? I'm out. <laughs> so you know, kudos to you for sticking in there for sure. So what was the reason for why you want to start the this, distillery? Was it passion, fame, cash? Did you just want to be a rich business owner? Well, when I was in Kentucky, I, I kept making all these discoveries that, that shocked me. Um, first of all, that the bourbon industry was declining. I, I, mm-hmm. I thought that was amazing because everybody I knew drank, drank bourbon whiskey. And I thought there was a lot of pride in the in the industry up there in Kentucky. Kentucky is so proud of their horse racing and so proud of their bourbon business. And I thought, well, I know a state where there's a lot more people than there are here in <laughs> Kentucky, and there's a lot more pride in these guys down down south. So um, I thought that if I could just get a brand out there that was a luxury brand, it had to be better than anything I could taste from Kentucky. I had to beat them before I was going to go to market with it. Yeah, It had to be good if it was going to be from Texas because everybody would be saying, bourbon from Texas? No way. In fact, if I had a dime for every single time I walked into a liquor store and said, hey, would you like to try some bourbon whiskey I make here in Texas? And they would turn and look at me and go, you can't make bourbon anywhere but Kentucky. If I had a dime for every single time I was told that, I'd be a really rich man. I remember even in the beginning, I I don't have any evidence for it, but I thought that it was one of the rules that it had to be made in Kentucky. Because there's all the rules about what ABV it's got to go in at and how long it sits and all that or whatever. But I just didn't 
un- somehow thought that, and that was obviously very wrong. Well, that was so, what was so great about my mentors up in Kentucky, me- meeting guys like Dave Pickerel and Bill Samuels Jr., Elmer T. Lee, Max Shapira. These are the legends of the bourbon business. These are the guys that pulled it out of prohibition and brought it back and kept kept bourbon alive in the United States. And they shared that knowledge with me. They said, you can make bourbon in Texas. Sure you can. Yeah. And, and I said, and I can call it bourbon whiskey? And I said, sure. And I, just to make absolutely sure, I wrote a letter to the Tax and Trade Bureau, <laughs> formerly known as the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And I said, can I make bourbon whiskey in Texas and call it bourbon? And the response I got to the email I sent was, of course you can. Why would you think otherwise? Don't be an idiot. <laughs> and I suddenly looked around and I went, holy shit, am I the only guy in America that knows that bourbon can be made outside of Kentucky? <laughs> so I started begging and pleading for people to give me money. Write me a check. You're, you're going to be an investor. Write me a check. Yeah. And uh, some people did it just out of curiosity. Those that just had, you know, extra capital sitting around that they could they could part with. And I don't think any of them ever really had any faith that it was going to turn out the way it has. But uh, hopefully I've done good by my friends and investors and will someday be able to write them a check. Well, that was going to be one of my next questions is kind of how did you start it up? Did you even bother going to a bank? I, I was so naive. <laughs> I went to every bank in Austin and, really? and sat down with them and they said, yeah. Here's, here's some of the questions they would ask me. Um, have you ever made bourbon before? No. <laughs> do you know how to make bourbon? No. Um, do you know how to make beer? And No, I have no idea how to make beer. And so I wasn't really successful at raising money. I'd never raised money in my entire life. And I would do things like I'd rent out a private room at a steakhouse and I'd have a 25-slide PowerPoint presentation and I'd invite every rich person I knew or my, my wife knew or my friends knew and I'd make a list and invite them to the bourbon dinner and um, we'd sit around and we'd drink Kentucky bourbons and talk about how good they were and how we were going to make a better one. Nobody ever invested in it. They all, really? They all just ran away from Great party, Dan. I'm getting the fuck out of here. Yeah. <laughs> you have no idea what you're doing, kiddo. <laughs> Do you think that where the market is today with bourbon would have made that process easier? Oh, Kelly, yeah. I mean, it's night and day. And then nobody was buying bourbon back in those days. You would go to a liquor store and there would be 3,000 vodkas on the shelf, but there's only 35 brands of bourbon on the shelf. So why would anybody want to invest in it in a dying spirit company? Yeah, I mean, you have to have some sort of tie to it. And if you don't appreciate the flavor or the experience yourself, you're never going to think it's a great idea. But yeah, so I would think it would be hard. But how did you end up finding people finally? Well, what was um, the secret? I think myself and my wife, we just have some really nice friends and neighbors who um, would come out here to the distillery. They'd watch me toying around with it and they'd try a little bit of this or that that I'd only aged, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And they'd say, hey, that's 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 pretty good. And I said, well, wait till, you, wait till it's four years old. Yeah, Then right. it's really going to be good. And so I convinced a couple of them to, to write me some small checks, you know, $100,000 here, $100,000 there which was big money to me at the time. It seemed like huge money to me at the time. I should have raised about $27 million, <laughs> but instead I raised about $6 million and was able to buy two 500-gallon copper stills from Vendome Brass and Copper Works with that money and was able to expand my production capacity significantly. And I did that between 2011 and 2015. 2016, um, the market got flooded with all of these sourced bourbon whiskeys. 
Um, everybody discovered that they didn't have to go invest in all the equipment like Dan did or mm-hmm. the brand or the bottles like Dan did. They could just source it from Kentucky and, 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 and sell it because there was a glut of bourbon in Kentucky already because bourbon sales were declining. So suddenly in 2016, we the shit fan big time. I mean, it was a total shit storm for us. And that the, was right when you were expanding outside the state. Too, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We actually turned a profit in 2015. Really? And in 2016, I mean, it was like 78 bucks. But in 2016, it was an absolute disaster. We had to lay off two of my staff, two people that I absolutely loved and hated doing that. We shrunk our production down dramatically, and it's hurting us today. If I wanted to meet the demand that exists today, I would have had that make that bourbon seven years ago. Right. So if you do the math on it, there's just no way around it. We survived 2016, and in 2017, we were able to raise some more money. And the next thing you know, we started getting really popular. Mm. Um, we changed our bottle design significantly from an old antique-style bottle to something that looks pretty glamorous on the shelf today. And I think that's been a huge investment in the right direction because now you go into a bar and you look behind the bar and you can see the Garrison Brothers bottles. They stand out much more than anything else that's on the shelf. They're usually up on the top too, so that helps. They're they're also (laughs) at the top shelf. That's nice. Yeah, I'm trying to think back. I know I saw the old bottle, but I can't really remember. Was it taller and skinnier? It was pretty much the same shape. The only difference was that the the glass star was on on the front of it. There was a raised glass star in the the center. Uh, The lettering that said Garrison Brothers was scripted and very difficult to read. Um, So we we simplified it. And um, then we brought in this whole concept of having different waxes to represent different things, different wax Mm. colors. So now we have a rainbow of bourbon brands out there. And you can see them from just about anywhere in the bar. Yeah, the, the branding makes a big difference, and it's one of the things that's frustrating in the industry, in ours as well. When you look at it, like, it doesn't matter how great it is, how much effort you put into the bottle, those little tweaks matter. Yeah. If you made that little tweak on the mash bill, nobody would probably ever fucking notice, but yeah. all of a sudden, well, make the bottle prettier and it sells better. And we put my name on it, you know, and that instantly separated us from the rest of the herd because it, it had garrison brothers on it mm-hmm. because everybody else was trying to come up with some sort of tx or, or something oh, right. something catchy blade and bow or something like that um instead of putting the name on the bottle once i put the name on the bottle i had to live up to it right i mean there's no way that I, i'm, I'm going to be satisfied with a shitty product so um i think that was a good move if you don't like angels envy it's god's fault if you don't like garrison brothers it's yeah, yours it's nice <laughs> funny yeah sure i get it i devote an entire chapter in my book to managing cash flow in the beer business and it's, in my opinion, is a big bitch simply because of the fact that it moves so slowly or so fast. And the reason is that you basically have to buy three batches of beer, three production cycles before you're going to get paid for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you have a very different business model because it takes you how long from day it's in the, you do mash ton. Oh, yeah. From grain conversion to bottling is typically what, three to five years? We're looking at five days of fermentation um, in the cook, and then we pump that beer. Uh, that makes turns into beer when you start fermenting it, and it's distiller's beer. It's very much different from what you've probably done in the past. Mm-hmm. It's a corn, wheat, and barley recipe, and then we pump that over to our stills. and takes about a, a, a day to distill an entire batch by hand using the batch processor, which is very, very slow, and then it takes us a minimum of four years in the barrel to age. So it's that same problem that I come back to again. 
my demand is suddenly through the roof. My demand's up 70, 80% this year. And everybody just says, well, why don't you just make more and capitalize on that demand? And I'm like, damn it, I would have had to do that almost a decade ago. I will. I am. Come yeah. back. <laughs> yeah. So that's obviously very challenging to, to figure out. And if I'm looking at that spreadsheet as the owner, it's, it's got to give me a like heartburn. Fortunately, like, I was too stupid to know how to look at a spreadsheet back then. That was my question. So now that you are, how do you manage that differently? How, do, how are you comfortable with the model now where Dan back then, if he had known what he known, would have lost his mind? If, I, if, if I'd have known what I know today, I would raise capital early, early, and, and I'd probably hire someone to help me, an investment banker of some sort who really knows the trade, because I, I truly had no idea what I was doing and made so many terrible mistakes. I almost lost this business about 10 times just because money people would come out of the woodwork hmm. that wanted it. Once once it was built and we were actually producing bourbon, everybody said, oh, well, that's not such a bad idea after all. And lots of people tried to buy it out from under me um, and I just stuck to my guns. Oh, like and, buy out the investor shares and stuff? Right. Yeah. Hmm. So I still have a controlling interest in it. We've given away some of the equity to, to continue our expansion. We've given away some of the equity to be able to buy barrel barns um, like... That one you see over there to your left is 24,000 square feet, holds about 18,000 barrels. You got to put the barrels somewhere. Right. Right. For a while. You don't have a choice. (laughs) And so we think we're about to reach equilibrium now where we'll have enough bourbon going into the the barrel barns that's coming out of the barrel barns at about the same time. Hmm. So that's a good, good problem to have. Yeah. In our business, the name of the game in the bourbon business is, um, it's, it's when the bourbon leaves the distillers, the, the distributors' warehouse. That's the name of the game. It's got to keep moving, and we've got to have velocity on the shelf. And our bourbon has incredible velocity. When they put it in bars, uh, those bottles, if you go to Fredericksburg today, I'm going to go drinking with some friends tonight. And I go in there, and the bottles are gone. And uh, you know, in, in two days, they <laughs> They completely disappear. So our velocity is just through the roof, especially out here in the hill country where people are familiar with our name mm-hmm. more so than they are in the rest of the country. But, you know, the reputation's growing and I think it'll continue to grow. So I'm excited about the future. Based on my insights in the craft beer market, I estimate that out of the 9,000 U.S. breweries that maybe max 20% actually make any money. And that's if you add back owner salary that's taken out beforehand. As far as profitability on the books, it's going to be way lower than that. I'm just curious with the amount that you've got, and we're going to cover this a little bit later, in the broader sense of the industry, but with the amount of bourbon distilleries in the United States, like, do you think it's that challenging to make money in bourbon as well? So when I started, there were the nine in Kentucky. And that was mm-hmm. it. Today, there's over 3,000 distilleries in America, and about 2,000 of those are making some sort of whiskey. Maybe mm-hmm. not necessarily bourbon, but, but there's a lot of craft distilleries out there, and it just continues to grow and grow and grow. The making money part of it is a disaster (laughs) because you have to have an exit strategy at some point, right? The only way I can get out of this is to sell my business. Mm -hmm. That's the only way I can get out. And that's the same with breweries. I mean, if you're not talking to Budweiser or Anheuser-Busch at some point, you need to be because that's your only exit. That's the only way you're ever going to make any money back. Those that are profitable, I mean, you look at at, uh, Boston Beer, you look at the guys, uh, was it Pyramid that did pretty well, I think, at the time out of California? Mm Mm-hmm. Sierra Nevada, Nevada, and I guess they did. I think they may have just merged with Dogfish Head. Was that? It was Boston Beer. Boston Beer, yeah. Boston Beer actually only made money last year, really, on truly hard seltzer, and so the merger with Boston Beer is to help give them a little depth in that marketplace because it's just 
it's a changing market. It sucks. Yep. And now the hard seltzer market's just crashing hard. Yeah. It's it's a weird weird industry overall. And as much as it, you know, I think spirits have been outside of it, I'm sure you felt it. It has to have sure. changed the market everywhere for the most part. But every ten years, somebody comes out with a new hard seltzer brand that that rocks for for yeah. you know one year, and then everybody realizes it's a fad and takes off. And it's not fun to drink, and it's it's, it's basically a vodka drink. Like, what are you, you doing? Feel, you feel bloated <laughs> when you drink the shit. It's, yeah, I, I can have three beers, and I gotta go to bed because I just feel gross. Yeah, I have definitely um, given up beer for the most part for a while. Like, I still have it, but by no means with the stick, enthusiasm I used to. Stick with bourbon; it's much safer. <laughs> I appreciate the advice. Sure. All right, so let's take a quick break, stretch our legs, and when we get back, I want to jump into how you actually craft the kick-ass bourbon that you sell to the consumers. Sure, be right back. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. I want to talk now a little bit about how you guys actually craft the bourbon. So my audience obviously knows much more about how to make beer and the process there. So let's start from that concept. You guys do initially make a similarly beer-ish product, but no hops. and For sure. Uh, we, that's the, the first thing we do is what we call mashing in, which is a, we use a sweet mash, which means we do not use any back set. We, do, we use a fresh fresh grain every single time that we make it. Uh, we're doing about two million pounds of corn, I think, a year now. Um, whereas back in the day, it was it was literally five bags of corn in the back of my truck uh, that I'd bring in from the panhandle. But we grind the grain into a fine powder. It's almost like a flour consistency when we're we're done grinding it. We use a hammer mill for that part of the process, and then that flour goes into silos that are up at the top of our kitchen on the on the second floor, <laughs> and those silos are on scales so they can measure exactly how much of that grain goes into each of the cookers. We have three cookers today, 2,000 gallon cooker and two uh, 500 gallon cookers. We cook that grain, we bring the temperature up to a boil about 212 degrees and then we add the corn for first um, with a little bit of the barley just to, to make sure that it's still viscous so it doesn't freeze up. Um, back in the early days I made a lot of glue because if you cook corn at a certain temperature and it hardens, you're in big trouble because then you have to get in there with this uh, giant spoon and scrape it all out. Uh, it literally turns into glue. Yeah. And it freezes up all your pipes and all your equipment. So I made a lot of glue in the early days. Then you bring the temperature down to 178 degrees um, inside the cooker and you add the wheat at 178 degrees and then you bring it down to 158 degrees and that's where you're gonna add your barley, malted barley. And that malted barley has enzymes in it and that enzymes converts the starch in the grains to sugar. At the end of a cook, will be about 23% sugar when the mash is sent into the cookhouse. 
and then it sits in a fermentation tank for four days. We add yeast to it. It's a proprietary yeast that we developed with a, a yeast company that, that keeps our recipe a secret and doesn't share it with anybody else. <laughs> um, that was the hardest part in the early days. I had beer guys coming in all the time to advise me on what yeast strain to use. And really? They, they had no idea how to do a, a whiskey yeast. So it took a long time. We went through champagne yeast, yeasts. We went through super starter yeast. We went to all sorts of yeast from, from, from Europe. And I probably tried 45 different types of yeast before I found one that actually worked and worked well. So that yeast... So do you get character from the yeast or are you looking oh more yeah. for... Okay, Flavored. So, lots of flavor from yeah. the yeast. And you can taste it in the white dog. The white dog is bourbon before it's gone into a barrel. But that beer, once we add the yeast to it, all of the yeast starts eating up all of the sugar that's in there and it spits out alcohol and CO2. So when you walk into our fermentation, our fermentation tank room you're going to smell a whole bunch of CO2 in the air. We mm -hmm. have air ducts that'll suck it out if the if the CO2 levels get too high because it can be dangerous for people that are on taking tours of the distillery for anybody with lung issues or decreased breathing capacity can can really get, get uncomfortable in the fermentation room. After 4 days of fermentation, we're going to pump that beer over to our stillhouse. Uh goes directly into the stills. We fill the stills all the way to the top and then we start pumping propane uh, into the into the to the bottom of the the tanks and that starts heating up the beer hmm. and when when alcohol reaches about 158 degrees it starts to separate from the beer itself so the alcohol vaporizes goes up through a condenser and the condenser turns it back into liquid the liquid alcohol flows down into a uh a tank where we have it, it, it sits in a in a in the uh, the whiskey still and floats to tell you the alcohol content we use a refractometer to measure the sugar in the in the, the beer at that level and then we use the the um, hydrometer that floats inside the alcohol to tell us what the proof of that alcohol is as it's coming off. That's where you have to be careful because when the alcohol starts flowing off the still, it comes out in different phases. And that first phase is going to be high methanol, very toxic, um, mm -hmm. causes cancer. Uh, methanol is, can, can kill you and make you blind. If you've ever seen pictures of those moonshiners sitting by the still out in the <laughs> middle of the woods with the white eyeballs, it's because of too much methanol exposure. So and that's the heads? Basically? It's the heads. And we have to make a, a heads cut early on. And you have to know exactly when to do it, too, so you can get all that methanol out at the early stages of the process. And then the heart of the run starts to flow after that, and that's the good stuff. That's the sweet, yummy-tasting ethanol that eventually is going to go into a white American oak barrel, and inside that barrel it'll become bourbon over time. Uh, typically, you have to wait about four years for the esterification process to take place, and that's where the molecules in the bourbon whiskey actually gelatinize with the liquid itself and that's when it gets smooth if you've ever had a shot of two-year-old bourbon and then tried a shot of five or six-year-old bourbon you can tell the difference in the esterification process some people just don't wait for that to happen and when they don't <laughs> it's bitter and it bites like a dog so with the d distillation process you do that multiple times like Tito says six, right? You have to do at least six? Well, when someone tells you that they distill it six times or eight times or 12 times, they're basically lying because what it means is that their column still that they're distilling on has 12 rectification plates inside of it. So it is redistilled as it goes through the column over and over and over again. We do a single distillation run. We don't do a second distillation run at all. Really? We have on our columns, we have four plates, four rectification plates in the columns itself. So it is getting higher proof as it goes up the still in vapor form. Do you start with a higher alcohol beer then to do that? Or does that matter? We're about 17% alcohol by volume at okay. the end of the fermentation process. I, I'm definitely not an expert, but I've heard different stories and 
I know one guy I talked to said he does like eight or nine. Like it was pretty low, I thought. I was surprised. But Well, he's probably not getting his money's worth, unfortunately. I would think it would be dramatically different flavor too. Like somehow it would affect makes a huge everything difference. down the line. So The alcohol by volume, the more we can get that up before it goes into the still, then the better we are at doing our job. I asked about the yeast thing because I, I think empirically if you had just asked me to add a whack, guess i would have thought that your idea would be to the most efficiently cheaply and least impact way turn sugar into alcohol so that you could then distill it into a higher proof product and so the fact that you use a yeast that has character i'm curious does that magnify through the distillation process so is a lot of because i obviously i've never tasted a bourbon without yeast character and then one with it so Mm -hmm. does that is that part of the final flavor of a Garrison Brothers? Definitely. Hmm. The uh, the white dog itself, when you taste our white dog, and if you come out here and take a tour, um, you'll be able to taste the, the sweet mash. You'll be able to taste the distiller's beer. You'll be able to taste the white dog as it comes off the still. And then you'll actually be able to taste aged various aged bourbons while you're on the tour. So you'll learn a lot more about bourbon whiskey than you ever wanted to know. But the, I can absolutely taste the yeast in the white dog. It has a distinct flavor to it, distinct mm-hmm. aroma to it. And once it goes into that barrel, it starts absorbing all of the sugars that come from the sap from the white American oak trees from which these barrels are made. And that sap is very sugary. It's got uh, glycol and oclactone and vanillin, isoeugenol, eugenol, and all of those are different flavors that you associate with cloves or smoke or, or leather or, or molasses or vanilla. All of that comes from the sap in the white American oak barrels that we use. So that sap eventually takes over that yeast flavor and overpowers it. So I would say you're probably tasting, when you taste bourbon, 80% of the barrel character and maybe 20% of the white, the original white dog character. Just more balanced out with other flavors. Interesting. Yeah. So one of my other questions was going to be, obviously your you're a little bit less tight-lipped about what your mash bill would be. And so distilleries like Buffalo Trace, for example, uh, are notorious for making two mash bills and like 45 different bourbons with it. And I don't know if you know this, but do you think they use a different yeast on each one too? Is that part I know of the they flavor? do. Okay. I know so, they do. Buffalo Trace does. I believe Four Roses uses multiple yeasts as well. Doubt Beam uses multiple yeasts. I, I wouldn't think so. That's but definitely I, a piece of the story I didn't know that when I heard that, I was like, well, that kind of takes some of the fun out of it. They use the same mash bill, but... At least if you use different yeast, then that still makes it a different flavor. Well, I guess we're a little bit boring, too. We use 74% corn, 15% soft red winter wheat, and 11% barley in everything we do except for high rye. We're in a town in high Texas, right? Mm-hmm. So we had to eventually do a high rye. I'm not a rye drinker. I've never been a rye bourbon drinker. I'm a weeded bourbon drinker. So that's why all of our bourbons are made with wheat except for high rye. And high rye is kind of an exception. We we find that here in Texas, it takes a minimum of six years in a barrel for that rye grain to become sweet and mm. flavorful. Um, so it's it's a very expensive bourbon to make. So we'll only introduce our high rye maybe every other year, maybe every two years. It's nothing we'll ever make money off of. It's more of a, just a, a vanity project. Yeah, I have actually be grown an affinity to rye. Rye was rye was my pathway back into bourbon. So I was always a Scotch guy for years. A buddy of mine's a big bourbon fan. He railed against me, and so COVID made me become a uh, bourbon fan simply because he and I couldn't get together. So we started doing a Zoom bourbon meeting, and so we would literally just each go buy the bottle, sit down, do neat, splash rocks, talk about it for an hour, hang up, be drunk. I think you and every other male in the country, well, females too. I mean, I can't, during COVID, I must have done, I think I was doing a podcast or a, a, a bourbon Zoom meeting with, with hundreds of people 
five, six times a week. You were bored. <laughs> it was every afternoon at five. Uh, you know? I drank so much in 2021. Oh, it was happy hour. It's great. Our sales were through the roof and still are today as a result. So COVID was very good to the bourbon industry. Yeah, take it where you can get it. You were talking about um, the process that we use to make bourbon whiskey. So that's pretty simple, um, that whole process of going from, from mash to beer to, to distiller's beer to white dog to bourbon. But what we really pride ourselves on here at Garrison Brothers is barrel usage. We are constantly studying the chemical makeup of different types of wood from different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we use port barrels from Portugal. We use uh, limousine oak casks from France to finish our Laguna Madre bourbon. We use the Guadalupe is, is the port cask finished one. We use a double barrel bourbon, which uh, uses casks that are made in Minnesota, and it also uses casks that are made in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and each of the chemical components of those two different casks is completely different because of the region and the terroir where we get the wood from. So that that's what we call Balmeray. Uh, named after the, the largest swimming hole in, in North America, which happens to be in West Texas. Yeah. Um, and I'll be out at Balmeray, uh, January 23rd through the 29th, working with Texas Parks and Wildlife to install a, a tree grove and an irrigation system for the grasses that have all died, basically. They've been trampled mm. to death. I'll be on the top of Guadalupe and Peak on that on the same weekend. Nice. Yeah. Well, bourbon drinkers are going to pay for that tree growth, for that well, good. planting. Because every time you buy a bottle of Balmeray, $2 goes toward good bourbon for a good cause, really? which is our public charity that we try to do good things with. So then from the production's perspective, you also normally then filter at the end, except for with Cowboy, correct? We don't filter in, in any way, shape, or form. Well, that um, Cowboy was the only one that said on the website that it was unfiltered. They're all it's, unfiltered. Okay. Here. We put them through a, a, a straining filter, which just takes all the solids out of it that come from the wood. But um, we is, really don't chill filter it, which is the, the bad word in the industry is chill filtration because it takes all the fatty acids out. And the fatty acids are a huge function of the resulting flavor of the bourbon. So is the assumption on the label then, because I don't think it says that on a lot of bourbons, is the assumption on the label that it's not filtered unless it is, says it, says it is? I think the assumption is that it's always chill filtered unless you say you didn't chill filter it. Okay. So I think our label does say that. I think it says something like, in, in the text, in the fanciful text as the TTB calls it, I'm pretty sure it says that it is non-chill filtered. And what would be the advantage of doing that? I understand with, with wine and beer, one of the reasons you do that is consistency on the shelf because there's potential for re-fermentation it's a a live or you know organism potentially in there but obviously bourbon is as sterile as it can get what the, does it do the alcohol content in bourbon is so high that you don't really have to worry about any sort of contamination or bacteria or fungus in, mm-hmm. in, inside the, the liquid itself it just doesn't happen the alcohol overpowers it and and so it, it, it can't exist inside that bourbon barrel so chill filtration gives it shine and what I mean by that is if you look at a bottle on the shelf um, and it's non-chill filtered, it's going to have a little bit of a haze to it and a cloudiness that it doesn't exist in the chill filtered alcohol products. So literally just completely narcissism, that's it. Like, it's shine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Take, take the flavor out so it's prettier. I guess that uh, doesn't make sense for my palate, but whatever is what it is. So talk about your production schedule a little bit. We, we've touched on that, that fact that it's obviously a pain in the ass because your demand way outstrips your ability to supply the demand but how do you guys react to that outside of i know there's a bunch of guys building new buildings right now and in the industry and so expanding but that's again 10 years right before that manifests and what happens to the industry in 10 years who knows i have a secret weapon uh his name is donis todd and he's our master distiller 
And Donis has found ways by reusing old fermentation tanks that we, we haven't used in 10 years. He's expanded our fermentation capacity significantly. He's got a program in place called Operation Fill the Still. And literally, <laughs> we are filling those stills all the way to the brim, it's, it's, it's putting as much beer into them as we can possibly do it. And so he's managed to increase our production capacity by about 30%. Our three years ago, we went to a night shift. So we were now distilling 24 seven, 365 days a year. The freeze last year, um, the freeze in the spring of last year uh, kicked our asses. All of our pipes fucking smashed to shit. All the PVC piping that we used for water transfers was smashed to hell. So now we're having to replace it all with stainless steel. But we, that put us down for about 10 days. And I was so proud of my team because these guys aren't afraid of going out and driving on ice to get PVC from every single plumbing store, supply store in San Antonio yeah. or in Austin. And we just bought everything we saw, regardless of size, length. We brought it all back here and reassembled the entire distillery in about seven days. This is a guy I used to work for when I was 19 and always used to tell me, I don't want to hear it, Kelly, just make it work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't hire consultants. We just fix shit. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So they figured out how to make it um, work in this situation. So I, one of the things I'm really curious about, obviously, 2008, Dan admitted that he didn't know what the hell he was doing on recipe formulation. And I have to assume that the recipes have changed somewhat over the years. Um, we we're getting more precise when we make our, our heads and tails cuts. We are we're making better beer using better grain. Corn used to be maybe at the end of a five days of fer, four or five days of fermentation. Our beer used to be about 15 percent alcohol by volume. And it continues to go up 16%, 17%, 18%, because my cooks are getting more precise at when they're making the actual cuts in the temperature of the, the cook. And our yeast is getting better. Our grain is getting better. Kernels today that we, we have that are coming from Pearsall, Texas, farms farmers that we know in Pearsall, the kernels are just bigger, larger, chunkier, and f- full of more starch. Mm. which is the the beginning of the process for us. So I think we're using the highest quality grain, highest quality ingredients of anybody in the country right now. I guarantee you that there's a lot, not very many distilleries in Kentucky that are using food grade grain. They're using (laughs) feed grade grain Mm -hmm. because that's what historically they did. Grain at the end of a harvest season, if there was any left over, it was pretty shitty grain and they would distill it so that they could keep it and it wouldn't go bad. Especially wheat, it's never really been made for or or reformatted for either brewing or anything outside the baking industry from my understanding. So they haven't really reformulated the, the growing parameters and all that kind of stuff so so if we were to open a 2010 bottle versus a 2021 bottle what, how would you describe the difference do you think i've done that recently have you our very first release was 2010 it never occurred to me to think about a bourbon vertical until i was writing the questions for this and i'm like i wonder what that would be like yeah. that's kind of cool the 2010 that we have is, is pretty brutal it was harsh it was 100 proof when we released it so um it and it was it was young it was only two years old so we called it the young gun and it's it's not nearly as smooth, as velvety, uh, or as buttery as what we're making today. Interesting. So I, I would assume that would be the case because obviously you guys have evolved. And and for for me personally, I, I remember tasting the bourbon in the beginning. And again, I was a scotch guy, so it wasn't fair to me. But I was like, oh, that's a bourbon. I It was, it was very aggressive for my palate. And I hadn't had it until about a year ago. And I was Duly impressed. My buddy and I sat down and we shared a bottle. And I was like, "Holy shit, this this is actually really good." I I apologize what for out there. Yeah, yeah, you know, I just take take the first impression. Um, when my palate was at a different place, and it it has changed and evolved as you guys have changed and evolved. So, I think that was an interesting experience, and I really appreciated it. So, thank you for making that bourbon. It was helpful to us in the early days too, because um, we told people this is a young bourbon. 
this is a young bourbon, but it's going to get better. Trust yeah. me, it's going to get better. And so we probably turned off a lot of customers in the early days that drank that young stuff and thought to themselves, ugh, Texas bourbon sucks. But um, they're not saying that anymore. Yeah. Texas wine had the same problem back then. So in the beginning, you had a partner and then you split up over disagreements to the, like how to make the bourbon and the concept of sourcing. So I have to assume that that's something that you're adamantly opposed to. We have never sourced Garrison Brothers, ever, and have no intention of, of ever doing that. Sourcing is a thing. It's a real thing. And um, it's a necessary evil. Just because I was too stupid to realize I could source it back then and I went ahead bullet-headed into making my own isn't always the right business plan. There are business plans that, that are genius and they're sourcing their, their bourbon from Kentucky or Indiana. So sourcing is, is, is always a necessary evil. It has to be out there somewhere. And it's always going to be. I mean, what happens when bourbon tanks again? What happens if it becomes unpopular? There's going to be so much on the market. That there's going to be plenty of sourcing going on, and the prices are going to drop to the roof. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, you know, prices are really going to drop. In fact, I anticipate that in about three years, there's going to be so much bourbon on the market that you're going to see price drops all over the country for, for all sorts of different products. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I'm sure people have been saying that for the last five years, too. Well, I've been <laughs> to Kentucky every year for the past 10 years. And what I'm seeing happening in Kentucky today, these guys are not going small. They're going big. Yeah. And some of the bit, most massive stills I've ever seen are being built at Vanille Brass and Copper Works right now. So all the Kentuckians, they didn't like the fact that part of their history and their, their legendary bourbon industry was sacrificed, in their opinion. And so they're coming in large now. And there's <laughs> big money behind it in Kentucky today. They're hoping that there's a slowdown. They can squeeze everybody out, essentially. Still just take over market share. I don't know what they're thinking because it seems to me that there's there's already way too much on the market. But demand keeps going up, so I, I can't explain it. What is interesting to me, so I told you about the Zoom thing that we did. We've done that every month since, so now it's been a year and a half. And so I, during that process, I've tried a bunch. In my personal opinion, I'll be honest, I still come back to like the same 10. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there, including some $80, $100 bottles that are just underwhelming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a, actually had a $600 bottle in November that was one of the better $90 rise I've ever had. It was $600. Right. It wasn't great. So I don't know. It's interesting. There's a lot out there, but I feel like there's not that much diversity, which is also one of the things I think is cool about your your flavor profile, your branding, obviously, and the distinctiveness of it, I think is a, a brand apart from the, the herd in a sense, at least in my, for my palate it is. Well, I hope so. We, we, we definitely wanted to do something different. So let's take another quick break. And after that, I want to see how your bourbon goes to market. So obviously your sales, the kind of distribution, you talked about how you went nationwide and obviously have been successful with that. But I want to get into that a little bit more in depth. So we'll be right back. So, hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com, or just type Brewery Direct into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. 
All right, welcome back. So, my birthday was on Monday, and I was sick. I was not able to uh, enjoy any bourbon, so Dan was nice enough to pour me some. So, what I if, would hope you would also then explain that bourbon to us. Can you tell me what I'm drinking? Sure, absolutely. On your far left is what's called honeydew. My wife likes to take credit for that. Um, we named it honeydew because for 17 years, she's been encouraging me to make a honey-flavored bourbon. But if you've ever tasted a honey-flavored <laughs> bourbon, it's nasty <laughs> shit. And so I wouldn't do it. And I fought back and fought back and fought back. And then my master distiller, Donis, finally came to my aid and came up with this really creative idea. He took uh, about 40 bourbon barrels and emptied the liquid into a big tank. And then he cut those bourbon barrels up into these tiny little cubes. And then he put all the cubes into a 55-gallon drum of Burleson's Wildflower Honey, oldest Texas honey company in, in existence. And good friends of ours partnership with us for, for a long time. So he put the cubes into the tank and let it sit for six months. And the cubes came out, and they were thicker and wetter and moist, <laughs> and they'd expanded a little bit. Then he took those cubes, and he tied them up into a giant cheesecloth bag, and he dipped the cubes into the bourbon tank over and over again for, for about six months, every single day, once a day. And he so, steeped them every day for six months. Every single day for six months. He likes your wife, doesn't he? This is a crazy project. <laughs> or he's scared of her. We're never going to make any money off <laughs> yeah. of this. The, the, the complexity of the process, the production process, is, is ridiculous. But um, it's so good. And everybody loves it. It's now our second best-selling brand behind our small batch bourbon whiskey. So you have in front of you two different single barrels. Whenever we taste a barrel and it doesn't fit our small batch flavor profile, we set that barrel aside and that, that gets bottled individually as a separate barrel um, because it's unique and it's, 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 that's what we want to try, try to do is different things. So each of those single barrels should taste totally different from the small batch bourbon whiskey. Well, I've had the, the honeydew and I have to say it's just the right amount of honey where it isn't uh, cloyingly sweet. It's exactly. there. It's almost like I've had things that had honeycomb in them before and it had that almost essence of honey. Oh, where it's man. It's not overbearing. It's great. The Jim honey, the Jack honey, they're just, ugh, it's like a syrupy candy breakfast cereal. It's just nasty. It's meant for a very different market. I think so. Yeah. All right. Well, I will continue to sip these as we talk. Uh, if you would be so kind, I would love to hear kind of the sales side and the distribution side of how you guys have structured this. And, and let's start with what I think is the obvious question. How'd you decide on your pricing? Because most breweries, <laughs> most breweries I've talked to, the, obviously the idea is they, they kind of go, hey, that you know, so and so is ten bucks on the shelf, so and so is nine bucks on the shelf. I got to be somewhere in there. I don't have the clout. I'll say I'm nine fifty, right? Clearly, if you did that, you decided, well, fuck you, bourbon. Uh, we're going to be twenty percent more. So, which I think is great, and obviously it's worked. So, how did you decide on your pricing? Pricing was determined by by the ingredients and the process, uh, much more so than, than the market. Yeah. We, we didn't go out to the market and say, hey, everybody's in the 20 to $30 range because we didn't want to be in the 20 to $30 range. We didn't, we, it was expensive. We knew how expensive it was. The ingredients alone, once you count the barrel into it and you count the glass bottles, you want to stop for a <laughs> yeah, second? Yeah, I'm going to wait on that one. Dogs going crazy. Pricing really wasn't an issue for us. Um, we knew exactly we were going to be the most expensive bourbon on the shelf, and that was that was what we wanted to be from day one. If you're going to go big, you got to go big. So we wanted it to be expensive. When I walked into Republic National Distributing Company and I told them what, what I was going to price my bottles at, they all laughed at me. They thought, thought I was out of my mind. That's never going to sell. It's never going to sell, Dan. You can't be twice as expensive as Blanton's and expect to sell. But it's selling. And it's amazing to me how many others have tried to take the high end away from us. 
Uh, you look at Whistlepig, for example. They are much more expensive than Garrison Brothers. It's, it's not bourbon. It's rye. but um, Source dry. It's source dry. It's <laughs> extremely expensive stuff. But somebody's out there drinking it because I, I do see it on shelves all over the place. Well, I will admit I like Whistlepig. But do yeah. you? <laughs> oh, yeah. We read one of those Scotch guys. <laughs> yeah. No, I, especially the 12. I really enjoy that one. But um, even Piggyback is one that I just... I actually don't mind. It's one of the only things I don't mind that's sourced. Everything else, it kind of bothers me, but I do like Whistlepig. Distribution and sales. I've, I've learned more about sales and marketing in the past five years than I had in the previous 12. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what a distributor incentive was. I didn't know why I would pay a distributor incentive. And then I suddenly kind of figured out that there's a good time to do that. And there's a bad time to do that. There are certain conditions where it works and can be very effective. If you're small and you have no control over your distribution tier then you're you're effectively fucked and mm-hmm. and we had a great relationship from day one with rndc I, I met with another big texas distributor before that and they handed me a 25 page contract and in one of the the, the sections was called separation if i ever wanted <laughs> to leave the contract i had to pay them five times the sales for a particular year and I, i'm tore that up right in their face and said that is absolutely ridiculous I'm a small business I'd go go out of business instantly and what leverage do I have over you because you're the guy that's going to be out there selling my bourbon Um, how 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 can I trust that you're going to hit the streets with your people and actually get it into stores or that you're going to go out and taste people on it because I know how this really works I've seen how it works and the only person that's out there selling it in the streets is me Mm-hmm. the maker and I'm not going to get any support from from my distributor at, at that angle Jay, Jay uh, Johnson was he was great to work with though he was very honest about it he said hey nobody's going to sell your product but you so you better get your ass out there and make some noise and if you make some noise and we start seeing turns if we start seeing supply flow through our warehouses then we'll get behind you too and you gotta you gotta look at look at it from the distributor's perspective they basically have a portfolio and that portfolio has tiny little brands that make them very little money and it's got big brands that make them a fortune and so they're going to put their money where the big brands are that make that they make a lot of money off of so i i wouldn't want to be in the distribution tier last no. thing i ever want to do is self-distribute my bourbon somewhere because it's just it's trucks it's warehouses it's expense it's, uh, it's just a nuisance and it's not something that i want to be involved with now with beer it's it's worked really well to give people like kind of out of the gates and control but there's almost nobody's making as much as they would if they could sell that same amount with a distributor, but they can never sell that same amount. This is a huge conundrum where basically the translation is it doesn't make sense. Right. Distribution sucks. Yeah. Please buy, please buy direct anytime you can. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I remember sitting in a Texas legislature conference room and watching all of the beer guys. It was a business and, uh, business and commerce meeting. And watching all the beer guys were there because they were trying to get a self-distribution bill passed so that they could distribute themselves. And the distributors pulled a fast one on it and said, okay, but every single time that you go distribute your beer, you're going to have to pay us 35% commission on it, even if you're self-distributing it. Yeah, the dock bump or whatever they called it. And they agreed to it. The brewers agreed to it. And I'm standing there going, that is extortion. And, and you're going to agree to it? But they did. And I was shocked. Some of the smartest guys I know were in that room who own breweries, and they agreed to it. It just blew my mind. Yeah, the concept with that one, there was a lot of pushback, and, and the, the, the party line was, we had to agree to this now because we weren't able to get what we wanted passed next time, and that there was a, and then there was even, I think after that one, 
we had agreed to a moratorium on making any changes for eight years. How can they, how can they do that? Why would you do that? But who knows what the hell's going to happen in eight years. But if the industry is in deep shit in three, we can't make a change. Get that. Get out of here. It's a fucking sausage factory. And the only people that are, that are profiting from it are the distributors and the retailers. The the little guys aren't making any money back. I'm not, I'm in year 17. I might turn a profit this year. Congratulations for that. Oh, thanks. It's been a while. Did you have a distributor from the very beginning? And the, mainly the question I ask is that first lease that you guys did, I think was a thousand bottles back in 2010. Mm-hmm. Was that all here or did you sell that out? Those first bottles were distributed through three liquor stores in central Texas. Uh, one in Johnson City, one right here at High, High Market, back when it was a liquor store. And then Western Beverage and Judy's, excuse me, it was four liquor stores, Western Beverage and Judy's over in Fredericksburg. And the distributors, they just thought I was a big pain in the ass. You know, if you're not going to go go big, how, how are we going to do this? How are we going to distribute just to these liquor stores? Because then the other liquor stores get pissed off because they didn't get not the opportunity enough, yeah. to do it. So, but how do you start big unless you've got $27 million behind you? And I didn't. So and you don't have commitments at that time, so you're still risking it. Had but. no way to do it. And i got to give Jay Johnson credit uh, at Republic National. I, I told him the story that, about that contract and how I tore it up in front of the other distributor. And, and Jay said, well, let's not do a contract then. And I went, really? Really? And he said that? And he said, he did. And sure enough, we shook hands and walked out of the room. And RNGC was my distributor with no contract, no clause, no penalty clause if I was to leave him. So... Um, it's been a great relationship and it's been a handshake deal since day one. Well, so just in the beer side, almost nobody likes our distributor. Uh, and some of that is because of the fact that it's a tier of the business that operates with a different skill set and different mindset and a different passion point. But so what, what's worked for you? Like obviously Jay's a cool guy and if it wasn't for him, it would be more of a struggle, but let's assume that you'd have figured it out anyways based on the system that you now employ. What do you do differently and what works? Like, how do you make that relationship badass? What has made it work over the past three years for us is feet on the street. We've got a network. We've got 74 employees today. And about half of those are out in the field. Uh, We've got a team in California. We've got a team in Florida. We've got a team in New York. got a team in Chicago. Obviously, a team here in Texas as well. And getting out and doing tastings at events... Getting in front of customers, if we can get the liquid to the lips, we're going to win a new customer. So that's been our philosophy for the past three or four years, and it really seems to be working today. Things have really taken off. Distributors have got behind us, too. All of a sudden, the distributors are calling me from all over the place saying, hey, in Massachusetts, can you move from this this distributor company to this distribution company? And that's never happened before. (laughs) We want you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Well, the brand, it's a pull strategy. The brand is pulling itself through the distribution tier, whether they like it or not. It's moving so fast and the velocity is so good. It, it's become such a popular thing to, to, to drink Garrison Brothers. So that's just good marketing. My marketing guy is a guy named Rob Cordes. I've known him for almost 25 years, I think. And hmm. he has done an amazing job of creating a super brand, which when I, back in my advertising days, Rob and I worked together back then too. And that was our dream to make a dominating Texas brand. That's been my dream since since I read Admin at War, which was a Skip Hollinsworth st- uh, story in Texas Monthly back in the day <laughs> about Stan Richards fighting uh, Roy Spence to get the Southwest Airlines account. And that fired me up. I wanted to be, I wanted to be a brand guy. So we spend every penny we can on marketing. Uh, it's about 34% of our total budget today. 
And so how different is that strategy state to state? Have you not gone to certain states because you weren't able to market the way you needed to? Definitely. We pick states based on the quality of the distributors in that state, the quality of the retail markets in that state. One of the greatest things that's happened to us is the rise and the dominance of Total Wine and More across mm-hmm. the country. When we hear of a new Total Wine and More opening up in Connecticut, we put people on a plane. Yeah. We're going to be at that grand opening, and we're going to be shaking hands and, and, and meeting people and, and getting the word out about Garrison Brothers in that store. And it's great to see the stores get behind us. The people at Total Wine and More really do good things for us. They allow us to come in and do a classroom teaching set and, and we we brought in chefs to to cook for for the events that they do it's been a great relationship to work with them they've yeah. really changed the what was a very tired industry they've brought a fresh face to it that i think consumers are excited about the people there whether they do or don't they seem to all care mm-hmm. um and so that's something that sadly is lacking in the chain liquor store industry <laughs> nationwide so yeah overall i think total wine has helped a lot Total Wine is making retailers all across the country better at what they do. Yeah. I mean, look, look at what Tin, Twin Liquors is doing here. They're, they're fantastic here in Texas, and they do a great job. How did you know for you that it was the right time to expand outside the state? You just have too much inventory and you need to get it out? or? <coughs> well, I'm not sure that I actually knew that. I, I started expanding outside of Texas in 2015, and that was probably way premature. I thought that I had enough consumer knowledge here in Texas. I thought people knew what my product was. I, I felt, thought that they were aware of it. And then all of a sudden my sales doubled the next year and then they doubled <laughs> again the next year in Texas alone. So I expanded way too quickly. If I had had it all to do over again, I would have just gone state by state based on the quality of the distributors in that state, the people I met with, the trust that I have with those distributors. We've kind of piecemealed it. We, you know, we really focused our concentration in California for, for really? the last two years and Florida for the last two years. And now we're focusing a little bit in Chicago, we're focusing in New York a lot. So we take important markets that are opinion leader markets and that's where we concentrate our distribution. And that kind of bleeds into all the other places, especially as tourists go there and bring it home or they move out to their new job somewhere else. It does. Yeah. And we, we also leave control states behind as much as possible. In a control state, you're not allowed to go promote your product. You're not allowed to go do tastings in stores. All the <laughs> ABC stores personnel have to do that for you and they don't. So it's really tough to sell bourbon in a control state. A good example is uh, North Carolina for us. North Carolina will order one case uh, from us at a time. And it's so expensive to one ship case? it. One case? It's crazy, yeah. So we're shipping one case to, to North Carolina. Probably FedEx. <laughs> and then, and then four, four months later, it'll be completely off the shelves and all completely sold out, and they'll order two cases. They don't get it. And mm-hmm. the control state model just doesn't work for a craft distillery or a startup. There's actually been some uh, retailers in Texas I've had that same experience with. Yeah. Uh, once a month ordering, and they never order enough. Yeah. So one of my... Admittedly, favorite topics to talk about is: Have you ever had to fire one of your distributors? Um, that sounds like an easy thing to do, but it's not. In, in many states across the country, Tennessee, for example, uh, you once you marry into a distributor, you're stuck with them for life. You can't move unless they give you permission to move, and they don't. They want to hold on to your brand just in case it gets hot. Texas is like that for beer, so we have the same problem in that sense. Yeah, it's not. It's an awkward relationship in every single state. It's fun though when they tell you that your product isn't moving and that they're not going to support it, 
and then you come back three years later and it's moving like crazy and the velocity's picked up through all the stores and the bars it's fun to kind of shove it in their face mm-hmm. and now they're your best friend and they answer your phone calls and you call yeah suddenly, suddenly things have changed a little bit yeah the uh tail is no longer wagging the dog well any uh any lessons there for distribution that you would recommend anybody yeah put your own feet on the ground build your own sales team and 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 trust them to do their jobs and get out on the field um if they're not traveling if they're not getting out on the field then you've got a problem. I definitely think the feet on the street strategy is, is the best method for doing that. Um, it's certainly worked for us, and I've seen it working for a lot of other people as well. All right, so we covered uh, distributing sales and uh, how you got your bourbon to people's lips. We're going to take one last break, and I've got some kind of parting questions for you, but why don't you uh, run us out with explain to me what this small batch is because this is pretty badass that's a combination of about 100 barrels um every single week that donis fills into a big old tank and that's all bottled up he's going to taste every single one of those barrels to make sure it fits our, our caramel butterscotch vanilla flavor profile that's our small batch bourbon that's our workhorse and that's what everything else starts as is our small batch bourbon whiskey hmm. and then um how we treat it after four years is what differentiates our bourbons from, from the others. Our Balmeray's double oat, for example. Um, after four years, it goes into the liquid goes into a new white American oak barrel. Um, our uh, Laguna Madre, uh, after four years, it's transferred into a limousine oak cask from, from France. Uh, the Guadalupe, after four years, it's transferred into a port cask from, from Portugal. So that's how we really make what we think are interesting bourbons. Yeah, just layer some more flavors in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's awesome. So on that note, let's take a quick break, and then I'll uh, get you out of here in a second. So, Remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and send it to your house in a book large enough to knock somebody out? Well, that's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. The industry can be better by being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simple to use, and one of those how-the-hell-did-we-ever-get-along-without-it products. For less than a case of beer, you get real-time fermentation feedback on your current gravity, temperature, and clarity. If anything is slowing down or just simply out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever else gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving beer quality off your list, and get back to figuring out how to be profitable in this industry. All right, welcome back. Thanks again for the whiskey. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you one of my... One of the questions I ask everybody, uh, I did not go online and try to pull a bunch of reviews of the bourbon, which I normally do for the beer, but... Obviously, you've got some sort of forum out there where people can say they like or dislike things. Um, somewhere, somebody's going to have said they didn't like your bourbon. You're probably going to unfortunately have read that. How do you deal with those? Like, So this is going to sound crazy. We <laughs> is have it? such a loyal following that they do it for us. When somebody goes... You get uh, self-policing? This is good. It's, I like. it's crazy. Yeah. Um, we have a group called the uh, Garrison Brothers Drinking Team. They've got their own <laughs> Facebook page. They've got almost 5,000 members. And if somebody goes online and says something bad about our people or our bourbon, they get shit canned. People come out of the woodwork and, and say, you're wrong. You're, you don't know what you're talking about. That's not the truth. Um, and it happens all the time. It, it, it's so funny to watch when it happens. That is awesome. And it, do, you, like, do you know these people? Were they early fans or bottle volunteers or just bottling volunteers primarily yeah. Garrison Brothers drinkers that have watched the business grow over time we also have a group called we call the old 300 
which is our, um, they are super fans of our bourbon and they've been really good to us through the years. Uh, twice a year now we're going to be doing what we call bourbon camp and we close the entire distillery down and only the old 300 are allowed to come in that day and it actually lasts all week and we do a pub crawl in Fredericksburg. We'll go to about three or four bars on a Friday night and make those bars lots and lots of money because they're <laughs> selling a lot of expensive bourbon. Uh, we'll do a dinner in our barrel barn with Chef Jack McDonald, who's an amazing talent and can do anything with bourbon and food. We'll have a dance. We'll have a hatchet throwing competition, bourbon drinking all day long, of course. Uh, we shoot shotguns, which we'll have skeet shoot during the weekend. Bourbon camp is just a blast and it's a lot of really nice people. And everybody gets to know each other really well. And um, so there's there's this, this strange following that we have that's almost, uh, it's, it's almost a cult, I think. A bourbon cult. There's worse ones to join, I guess. I think so. This happens all the time in the beer industry, and I don't know if it happens for you, but uh, you know, guy wanders in and he says, "Man, I'm I'm going to start a distillery next year." What do you tell him? Come on up. We don't hide any of our processes. Um, if someone wants to start a, a distillery, I'll give them access to my distillers, uh, my mash cooks, and they can come on up and and take a tour of the distillery. There's nothing There's nothing we hide about our process. You can see it when you go on the tour. In fact, you probably saw that trailer taken off with the, with the tours this, this morning. Mm-hmm. They're gonna see every single part of the process. So I wanna help people as much as I can. I would discourage someone from getting into it today because I think the market is totally saturated. There are so many people out there making so many different types of whiskeys today that the store shelves are full. And the first thing you should do if you're going to start a distillery is hire a distributor. How do you know that you're going to get distribution at all? Wouldn't you hate it if you pumped three, four, five million dollars into your business to get it started? You finally had a product and then you went to the distributor and they said, sorry, man, we got too many already. <laughs> We're full. We're full. So we, you can't get to market. So you need to think about that first before you get all ambitious and entrepreneurial and go spend a whole hell of a lot of somebody else's money. Yeah. So that was actually one of my next questions is that we talked earlier about being 9,000 breweries in the United States. And, and I recall early 2010s, it was maybe 13, 14, 15, something like that, where we hit the most amount of breweries the United States had ever had, like 3,600. And we're now two and a half times that. And I think that we hit what would be kind of saturated, like the first stage of saturation at about 5,000, 5,500, maybe 6,000. Where are you guys at? Like, what is what does saturation look like in the bourbon industry as far as number of distilleries, in your opinion? So before Prohibition, there were about 3,000 distilleries in America, scattered all along the eastern seaboard. And today, there are about 3,000 again. So we're right back to pre-Prohibition levels in terms of, of the industry. And I think it is saturated. I know a lot of folks, small, smart people that, that are, have worked their ass off and have come up with very interesting products that can't get at the market. Their only strategy is to sell from their gift shop. And the state legislature limits how much you can sell from your gift shop. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to, to make no a big profit. There. Yeah. There's, there's, it's a dead-end proposition. Which has to have been the plan of somebody's. Who do you think that put that in place? In, in beer industry, we know it was the, at least in Texas, it was the distributors in 1984, 87, the, the Fair Dealing Act that is not fair in any, any stretch of the imagination. But right. who do you think stacked the deck against suppliers for distilleries in the United States? Well, there's really only two distributors in Texas. And if you're not with one of them, you're not going to get to market. And so operating a little gift shop and selling from that is not going to make you money, especially if you're in the bourbon game. You might be able to pull that off with a vodka or a gin or a rum, but not in the bourbon business. It just won't work. 
All right. So we touched earlier about the the Bourbon Lake, the you know, the potential of that happening again. And you said it com- was coming. I'm curious what market insights you see that are giving you that impression. It's just that it's slowing down. That you're just seeing more more production from Kentucky. Like, why do, why do you envision the next two years being bad for startups and for growth? I think it's good. There's just going to be a glut of liquid on the market, and not just bourbons, but vodkas. I mean, there's a lot of from the supply side or a lack of demand. Oversupply. Okay. Definitely. So too many people are making too way, much stuff. Way too much. Too much. What's happening in Kentucky today is just is frightening to, to, to a guy <laughs> like me because my operation is so small compared to some of these startups that have millions of dollars behind them, and we've never had that. We're never going to have that, and so we've struggled to get to where we are. And then I go up to Kentucky and I see a place like Rabbit Hole that literally opened up two years ago, and they're already pumping out you know, 50,000 cases a year in their, in their second year of operation. How does that happen? Uh, They also sold out too. I think they did. Somebody bought them a year ago, I think. It's going to keep happening. Mm -hmm. That's your only exit strategy in this this business is to sell it out eventually. Well, especially if people keep waving dollar figures in your face, that's the other part of the problem is some of these guys got into it altruistically to be artists, but when somebody waves 30 million bucks, you're like, all right, fine, I'll get the fuck out of here. I don't care. Yeah. Like, I got other stuff to do. This is but. a brutal business to be an artist in, that's for sure. So what is the biggest obstacle in your business you overcame that you were the most proud of? I would say it's probably the distributor relationship. The fact now that I have good relationships with all of my distributors, because I was I was a pain in their ass back in the day. I was constantly bitching at them for not getting their people out on the streets and selling my bourbon. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw some things behind the scenes that made me sick to my stomach. I remember one guy, uh, I was working with a distributor in San Antonio, and he walks into this, this nightclub style bar, which is not my crowd whatsoever. And he says, I'm gonna get you in here. <laughs> and I said, why? Why are we even trying? This is not my crowd. This is not where I want to be. And uh, we went inside. He introduced me to the the proprietor of the place. And she said, no, I don't want it. I'm not putting it on my shelf. And we walked out. And then he, he goes, hang on one second. And he goes back in. And he's got a brown foreman uh, card, a swipe card. And he swipes it at the register and tells her he'll swipe it five times if she'll put my bourbon behind the, behind the bar. That's that's wrong, you know, and I don't, I don't deal with unethical people. They're stealing money from Brown Foreman to try to push my products. That's that's just wrong. And I saw a lot of that in the in the early days of the, the distribution business. Yeah, it's and, and all that stuff is either illegal or frowned upon and still done. And there are some things that it's okay to pay for. But I remember when we had talked to Glazers early on and Glazers showed me their performance for San Antonio and I wanna say it was like Ninety thousand dollars they spent on draft equipment. Mm-hmm. And you're not allowed to buy that much draft equipment as a distributor. Like most right. of it, they're supposed to buy themselves. And that was like, well, obviously there's some kegerators in there, and some other things that probably aren't supposed to be there. Like faucets are thirty bucks, dude. <laughs> like, yeah. That's a lot of faucets. Well, the TABC doesn't have enough personnel to enforce their laws. The TTB, the Tax and Trade Bureau, definitely doesn't have enough uh, people to enforce their laws. So um, it's kind of the wild, wild west. Uh, get out there, do what you feel you can ethically do. Um, don't try to break the rules, but sometimes if you're going to get to market and you're going to sell your product, you'll, you're going to have to break the rules. Yeah, well, the hard part, and this is actually probably a good question for you. So how did you deal with that, knowing somebody was beating you while breaking the rules, choosing to not compete or not to win but keep your 
principles intact. We never cheated. We never did business with anybody we didn't like. I remember walking out of some liquor stores just because the owner behind the counter and it was just plain rude. And I said, you know what? I'm not gonna let you sell my bourbon and walk out. And they're like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> that's never happened before. But that's, you know, you, you, you keep to your principles. We have a mission statement at Garrison Brothers that we wanna make the highest quality, finest tasting bourbon whiskey in the world. And then we list all of our core values underneath that. It's on our website. It's on every job application. And down at the bottom of the job application, it says, if you don't agree with these core values, then this is not the place for you. Take a hike and go somewhere else. Because we believe we believe in God here, for example. <laughs> and a lot of people don't like to say that publicly anymore, but we do. And we're proud of that. We're proud of those core values. Yeah, that's cool. Especially the fact that you tell it all the time. Like A lot of companies will do that, compartmentalize it. It's on the board somewhere in the break room behind a door but they don't ever really talk about it. It's one of our best best advertising processes. When we talk about who we are as a family, it attracts people. It's that kind of environment too. Like, it's, yeah, that makes sense. So same topic, like what is, give me an example of a struggle that you did not overcome that looking back, you, you wish you could go back and do a different way. Oh, I, that's gotta be raising money. Back in the early days, I just had no idea what I was doing. Um, Seven million ain't bad, dude. Like I've, <laughs> for a guy who, doesn't know what he's doing. That was uh, that's a pretty big raise. I had no idea how much money it was going to take. Well, that's um, a good point. It's, it's real easy to figure out how many tanks you're going to need, how many stills you're going to need, how much glass you're going to need, how much grain you're going to need. That's the easy part. Yeah. Um, and it's fun to make bourbon whiskey. But all of a sudden, you get to the part where you have to get it to market, and you're like, holy shit. They're paying him what? Um, they're paying their sales director $250,000 a year. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't make, I'm like, I don't make half that. And, and it's just crazy to hear the numbers that are out there in this, this industry. There's, you know, guys in their fifties that are, that are making a half million bucks a year in a sales role. And that's, that's expensive. It gets really expensive when you decide you're going to go big. Yeah. Well, especially on a per bottle race, Bejo, when you're small, like until, until you get to the point that you're moving so many cases, that's just unheard of. It is. Uh, the beer industry has some of the same issues, and we have some tiers in there that most of the guys in Texas are under a tier level where everything is dramatically expensive. And uh, like I don't know if you know Harry Schumacher, yeah, right. a beer writer out of San Antonio, he was talking about how the one thing that Miller never understood is that every single thing Miller did cost twice as much as if Budweiser did it, because Budweiser was twice as big. So they had the ability to just laugh at every little move they made and be like, well, I can do it for half. I'm like, shit. Right. That just sucks. Like, yeah. you can never compete. Did you remember the worst bourbon you ever had? The worst bourbon I ever had. There were a couple of not so <laughs> good bourbons that I made myself back in the day. Um, really? When I was experimenting and trying to learn how to do it. There was one out of Kentucky, but I'm not going to name the brand name just because they're, they're friends and they're nice people, but I've never been very fond of it. What about the best? I have always liked Blanton's. I've always liked Weller 12-year-old. But when I got to Kentucky and I discovered a bottle of George T. Stagg, it was a game changer. And I hate that expression. I can't believe I just used it. But it, the Stagg, there was nothing. I'd never had anything like it before. You know, cask strength, 142 proof, rich and syrupy and just, oh, my God. That was, that was sex in a bottle for me. Really? That's one of the ones that I haven't had. So hmm. it's, uh, it's been on the list. But I don't wait in line for bourbon. It's just kind of a thing. Oh. Uh, the closest I've done is Eagle Rare. Get our cowboy bourbon. You'll like it better than stag. Okay. Well, there you go. I don't need to worry about it. Is that kind of a similar profile, but better? I think so. Okay. Um, I mean, I love my stag, but uh, 
I, I really think the Cowboy Bourbon is one of the best bourbons being made today. Well, so that actually is one of my next questions that lead right into it. So for me, owning the brewery for nine and a half years, there's a lot of trauma there. Everything that we went through, my wife worked there with me and we went through that together. So ever since I sold the brewery back in September, I would say that I've not sworn beer off, but I have definitely lost my love affair with beer. Um, I don't reach for it off the clock. If yeah, I Appetite went away, huh? It's weird. I don't crave it. I used to crave, especially before. I remember there were nights where there was like a Duval in my fridge and I'd be out doing something. I'm like, I can't wait to get home and just sit through with that Duval and just on the couch. And, and I would literally, there's no chance on earth I would do that today. So my understanding and from what I've talked to you and what I've seen that you still not only enjoy bourbon, you do it on purpose and you do it with passion, yours obviously, but what do you think is different between, and then this is pure speculation you don't know me that well, but what do you think is different between your situation and mine? Why do you still love it and I can't stand beer? Gosh, what advice a, do you have for that's me? That's such I guess? a tough question for me to answer. Um, I mean, I'd be drinking with you right now if I, if I could, but I've got a, a date later on with the, the, the couple of people that I'm taking out to dinner and I don't want to be sloppy while I'm out there. Yeah, so, right. Uh, plus, I, I have to drive all over the hill country this afternoon, so... I can't drink right today, but I guarantee MT I'm going to have a, dinner, uh, a bourbon with my dinner tonight and I'll enjoy the hell out of it. There's something about bourbon. It's it's more than a drink. It's more than a beverage of choice. It's it's a lifestyle. It's an attitude. It's a um, It brings people closer together. I think I mentioned earlier we have a public charity called Good Bourbon for a Good Cause. Um, and the philosophy behind Good Bourbon for a Good Cause is that good bourbon creates legendary stories. Good bourbon creates lasting friendships. Good bourbon could increase one's faith in man and God, and um, and I believe all of that. I really do, and I do believe that good bourbon can change the world, and we're doing it through good bourbon for a good cause. I'm watching the magic of bourbon and bourbon drinkers, watching it make a difference in the world. All right, I'll go with that. I like that. Tell me what we can expect from Garrison Brothers going forward in the future. Like, what is what do the next ten years look like? What you know, obviously some of that you don't know, but what's the plan, right? We have two or three sexy ideas that I can't get into. I can't tell you what they are. What but a they're, dick. They're I'm just going to say that. They're interesting. <laughs> they're, I am a dick. Yeah, I get it. They're, in, they're very interesting brands. We want to we keep ourselves interesting. We want to sell a shit ton of small batch, but we also want people to be, think that we're interesting. We're doing interesting things and never get bored with, with our lineup. So we're always looking for two or three experimental projects that are, that are already underway. We don't have a brand name for them yet. We don't have packaging for them yet, but they're definitely sitting in barrels in one of Donis's barns. <laughs> okay. The expansion outside the States too? Yeah, I hope I hope that we can expand as early as maybe 2023 um, into some foreign countries. We're currently sold in six foreign countries, but I'd like to see more of a presence um, internationally. Uh, Europe, for example, South America, for example. Japan's a good market for us. China will be a raging market for bourbon whiskey at some point. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be huge. Their middle class is, is you know, substantially richer than our middle class here in America. Yeah. And we need to face facts. That's going to be a market for our products eventually. So anything planned here at the beautiful estate? Uh, we're going to put in guest Wi-Fi. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> well, we are kind of in the middle of nowhere. so. That's about it. I don't think we're going to add any new buildings. We're building one more visitor center slash barrel barn rickhouse um, way on the back of the property. That project will probably start in uh, April, May timeframe. Okay. Well, so I think that was a, an amazing example of like how bourbon is different than beer, but then also very similar to beer. 
I appreciate you sharing the stories of your struggles and failures and successes. My um, pleasure, Kelly. Really enjoyed it. It was really fun. So where, obviously outside of people's local liquor store and favorite watering hole, where can they find you guys online? Like where? Uh, go to our website. We're not allowed to sell. We have to sell through the three-tier system, of course. Sure. But there's ways to make that appear like we're selling it direct, even though we're not. Um, and so if you go to garrisonbros.com and you go to shop, you'll find a list of retailers all over the country that you can order it from. Okay. Online. And then uh, on social media, you get Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Facebook, all those guys. We're, we're all of that. Uh, I don't even Snapchat, Pornhub. I don't know where anybody all what does everybody have anymore. But so, is it uh, is Garrison Bro- Bros pretty much? Just Garrison Bros. Yeah. Okay. Great. Or at Garrison Bros, I think is one of our handles on something like Twitter or Facebook or Insta, Instabook. I don't. I'm, yeah. I'm too old. And whatever the next one's shit. about to be that comes out. Right. So. All right. Well, thank you very much for the time today. Thank you for the whiskey and uh, thank you for the insights. So, my uh, pleasure. Thank you very much, Kelly. Have a great afternoon. You too. So you're not getting out of here without at least a thanks from me for sticking around. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out my others. I feel confident that my guests and I have something very special to share with you. Also, remember that the book that inspired this podcast is now available on Amazon in Kindle and good old-fashioned paperback. I can't encourage you enough to pick up a copy, but I am happy to try. If you're feeling generous, you can support the podcast in a couple of ways. Please give your time, attention, and money to the sponsors of the show, and you can also sponsor the show directly with a link in the show notes. Positive reviews are also a great way to digitally high-five my guests and I, and while I may be the raucous host, these people have bared their souls for you, and I can't thank them enough for their honesty and desire to selflessly help improve your career. I want you to know that you are meant for more than mediocrity and that no one ever achieves greatness without a stumble or two. But most importantly, always remember, mistakes are just weakness leaving your business. Free play. Media. Media.